Good morning. Good morning. How we doing? I told this church last night, those that were here on Saturday night, I'll say it again. I don't think it's fair to ever make a preacher preach after John Benson sings. It's just not right. And um, I love that song, um, You Reign Above It All. And uh, even as we get into our study today, I'd ask you to take your Bibles, turn to Exodus 20. We are in a study from the Old Testament. We're looking at the Ten Commandments this fall. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hands. There's ushers coming up and down the aisles. We want to get a copy of God's Word in front of you. Um, we're going to be in Exodus 20. If I reference other scriptures, I will put those on the screen. Um, please understand our heart in this study. It's called Timeless Truths for Truthless Times. And um, if we get to the end of this fall... And all you guys do is understand uh, the Ten Commandments or the Old Testament law a little bit better, we would have failed. Our, our goal is through this study that um, you would understand a holy God better. You would have a stronger appreciation for the gospel that through this study we would learn something about the heart of God, particularly as it relates to us. Um, that would be life-changing, life-altering for us today. Hey, please don't view the Ten Commandments as a list of God saying, don't do this and don't do this and don't do this. I actually believe that it's a love letter from our Creator that is written to us to say, hey, listen, choose to live this way because what I want for you is to give you a lasting joy that you're not going to find in any other way. So last week, Cal started the study. Actually, we've been in it two weeks. He did an intro week. But last week, he looked at the first commandment, which is you shall have no other gods before me. And uh, he closed that service by asking this question, how do you know, how can you be sure that you're keeping the first commandment? And he asked these questions. Is your primary allegiance to Christ? Is, is Christ the place where you have placed your hope and trust? Are you serious about walking in obedience? And we're going to jump right into the second command this morning. I'm going to pick it up in Exodus 20, verse 4. Here's the second command. It says this. It says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So if you look at the heaven above or on the earth or under the water, can we just say that pretty much covers everything? Kind of an broad definition there. Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. If you were to look at a brief summary or somebody just wrote on like two stone tablets, you put it on your wall, the Ten Commandments, it would say the first commandment is no other gods. The second one is often just summarized, no idols. Well, it's, it's a little bit deeper than that. It's a little bit more involved for that. I would argue that the first two commandments are paired. The first commandment talks about who we're supposed to worship. The second command talks about how we are to worship. The, the first command says, don't worship a false god. The second command says, don't worship the right god falsely. They're paired. They go together. It's not just about making an idol to some other god. Very, very seldom are we sitting around going, well, who should I worship today? God or Baal or God or Buddha? That's usually not the question. Or, hey, should I make a statue or have an image in my house that becomes my god? That's usually not the issue. It's usually way more subtle than that. Idols tend to be sneaky. Luther will argue that you can't break any of the following eight commandments unless you've already broken the first two. That you won't covet, you won't lie, you won't steal unless you've already convinced yourself in your heart 
that there is something better, there's something greater that will bring you more joy than doing what God's commanded by putting him first, by not making graven images. All of us are guilty of idolatry. John Calvin says that our hearts are idol factories. And as I say that, let me just really quickly uh, give you a, a working definition of idolatry. This is very, very simple. Idolatry is simply this, valuing something more than you value God. Valuing something more than you value God. And that list can be exhaustive. It's not just something that we make. An idol is something that we value more than God. So let, let's just kind of explore this. Let's go on a little bit of an idol hunt this morning. Let's say that you are really into how you look or your appearance or what people think of you. And, and you've decided that, well, I can only be happy. I'm only going to be, uh, feel good about myself. I'm only going to know joy if I have a certain body image. Okay, listen, there's nothing bad with looking good. There's nothing wrong with staying in shape. The problem is when a good thing becomes the ultimate thing, it becomes an idol. And, and in your body image, hey, clue phone, as you get a little bit older, it's a crummy God. It's just a cruddy God. It's, it's hard to satisfy. If, if, if your God or your idol is, well, listen, if I can have a certain type of house or if I can accumulate a certain balance sheet or if I can have a certain amount of money, well, then I'll know joy. Then I'll be happy. Then I'll feel like I've really accomplished something. Listen, it's, it's not wrong to have money. It's not wrong to have stuff, but it becomes an idol when your stuff has you. You've got to be very careful. Idols are sneaky. So when Cal asked last week in teaching I'll have no other gods before me. He said, what's your primary pursuit? What is your primary focus? He's getting to the bottom of this issue. Very often, God is saying, listen, I want you to worship me and me alone. And we're kind of saying, listen, I want to follow God, but I also want this. I believe it's God plus this that will ultimately satisfy the first command is about worshiping the right God. The second command is about worshiping the right God in the right way. The big idea, if you're keeping notes this morning, is this. How we worship matters as much to God as who we worship. How we worship matters as much to God as who we worship. The second command isn't hard. It's, it's straightforward. It's easy to understand. What the second command is saying is simply this. Don't make any images that represent God in any form. Don't make any images. Don't create anything that is going to be a replacement for the holy God. And we are not to worship images of any kind. Why? Why does God give us this command? I'm going to give you three reasons this morning. I'm sure there's more, but here's three. Here's the first. God gets to decide how he's worshiped. If God is God, he sets the rules. And God has said, don't make any image, don't make any likeness of me that becomes the object of your affections, the object of your worship. He gets to decide because he's God. And that's a problem for us, right? Because if I've learned anything in the last three years, we all don't like to be told what to do. Can we agree on that? It was interesting. Kristen and I, earlier this month, we spent um, two weeks uh, in Italy. We drove from Zurich down to the south of Italy over two weeks. And we flew to Zurich. We flew on United Airlines. That was great. Flying back, we flew out of Naples. We flew to Munich, back to Chicago. But what it meant was we weren't on United. We were on their partner airline, which is Lufthansa. As we went to board Lufthansa, they asked a question that United never asked. They said, 
do you have your mask? Nine-hour flight. Lufthansa, maybe the only airline in the world, still requires you to wear a mask the entire flight. Anybody here over masks? Oh, yeah. Like, like so, so I hear this. I'm like, well, here's what I would tell you. I made no stink. I did exactly what I was supposed to. I obeyed the rules. I just raged in my heart. Because <laughs> we don't like to be told what to do. We want to worship God on our terms. We want to worship God our way. We want to worship God contingent that he, well, he does this, or that my life is free of conflict, or that I have success, or that I have family unity. See, see, we'll worship God as long as he is doing what we ask him to do. And the first or the second command, you won't make a graven image. As you look at why, the first thing I would like to point out for you is God sets the rules. He determines how we are worshipped. It's interesting, when we started this church, I was thinking back, all the way back to 2009, 2010, when we were first meeting as a core team before we ever met. We spent a ton of time praying about, studying, what does God call a church to be? Not what we want a church to be, not what the community would desire in a church. What, what, what does God want a church to be? And, and some of the things we landed on, and I can give you verses for all of these, is a church is a place where God's word is to be proclaimed boldly. Paul gives Timothy, a pastor, to the church in Ephesus. He says, hey, above everything, preach the word in season, out of season, proclaiming the word of God boldly. The church is a place where the people of God gather to worship him passionately. A church is a place where you go to be accountable, where you know each other, where there's a sense of community. A church is to be a house of prayer. A church is a place that is to make disciples and then take those disciples and send them out to be a witness for the Lord. This is what God tells a church to be. But as you start a church, even from our own hearts, we get distracted. We go off on rabbit trails. And as I look back on our church, I'm glad we started with that commitment. What do you want, God, for a church to be? And I don't think we've done it perfectly. I'm sure there's things that we have screwed up over the last decade or 12 years. But here's what I know. That was our heart. That was our intent. God, how do you want to be worshipped? And God says, don't make images. And it's interesting, he gives you a rationale of why he says that. Take a look, or I'll put it up on the screen. In Deuteronomy 4, there's this interesting passage where um, God is talking about when he gave the Ten Commandments, when the people gathered at the foot of the mountain. It says this, and it says, And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. Verse 14. And the Lord commanded me at the time to teach you the statutes and the rules, that you might do them in the land that you were going over to possess. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in any form of any figure. Here's what God's saying. I chose to reveal myself to you through spoken word. 
Now, Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Creation gives witness to who God is. How did creation come into being? How was it created? God spoke it into existence. And in the second command, what God is saying is, I want you to worship me according to how I chose to reveal myself to you. And it's interesting. You can go all the way back to Genesis 3. Adam and Eve are in a garden and the serpent comes and says, did God really say? And what's under attack is God's word. And we are tempted in this room, we are tempted to say, man, if God, you would just make yourself real. I'm going to put out this fleece. If you would just answer this the way that I want it. God, 50 bucks, it would get me out of a couple jams. Like if you could just show up. God, if I could just hear your voice, then I'd believe. And God says, I've already given you everything you need for godliness through my word. Don't make images. Don't fall for experiences different than the way that I've chosen to reveal myself. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes through hearing and hearing from the word of God. The second command basically says this. God is saying, do not make or allow anything ever at any time to diminish my glory. It's interesting. As Moses is giving the Ten Commandments, he's up on the mountain. God is giving him the Ten Commandments. Do you guys remember what's going on in the valley? Do you guys remember? The people are gathering. They're like, why is it taking so long? What happened to Moses? They're, get, they're getting impatient. So what do they do? They go to Aaron and they agree and they conspire and they make for themselves a god. Do you remember what the god was that they made? A calf. So where'd they come up with this visual representation of God as a calf? Well, they were borrowing from the way people worship gods around them in Egypt and in Canaan. They said, we want our god to look like other people's gods. So they made a visual representation of the invisible almighty God. How God respond to that? Was he pleased? Do you guys remember? Moses ticked. Comes down. He, he takes the golden calf. He melts it down. It's very particular, the, the passage. He melts it down. Then after he's melted it down, he grinds up the ashes. He puts them in the water. And what does he do? He makes the people drink it. Why would he do that? Well, he's making a visible or a, 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 an analogy that says, hey, listen, other gods are not going to satisfy. And the funny thing was the people weren't worshiping other gods. They were worshiping Yahweh. Uh, I was listening to a pastor this week on Right Now Media. He was talking about the Ten Commandments, and he made the comment. Uh, his name is Albert Tate. He's a pastor from L.A., and he says the problem wasn't that they were worshiping other gods. They wanted Yahweh their way. Be very, very careful, be it through an image or even something of your imagination, that you visualize, God, you visualize God different than who he is. God says, hey, you want to know about me? I gave you my word. I revealed myself in my word. Therefore, don't make a graven image. And God gets to decide how he's worshipped. Here's another thing, the second reason. Our creations diminish or cheapen the creator. Our creations cheapen the creator. So we lay these, this sermon series out. Khaled basically said he wanted to go through the Ten Commandments earlier this summer. We were actually headed a different direction, so we shifted because God had laid that on his heart. I didn't know this when we laid out the 
series, but driving through Italy for two weeks while I'm preparing for the second commandment, I, I saw God's sense of humor, the irony of that. Because we drove into Zurich, we went down, kind of drove through the Swiss Alps, and then we were in towns like Milan and Florence and Naples. And guess what's in the center of every one of these towns? A cathedral, a, a, a domo, a, a, a church. And quite honestly, they're pretty spectacular. Here's a picture of the church in Milan. Mark Twain visited this and said it's the greatest thing ever made by human hands. The, the level of intricacy of this cathedral is mind-numbing. Kristen and I actually took a tour. We went up on the roof of the cathedral. Every spire that you see on top has a person standing on top of that spire. Every spiral under that person has six more people around it. The level of just the ornateness of these buildings. Hey, by the way, they started this thing in the 1300s. It took 600 years to complete. They finally finished it in 1965. As we walk through this cathedral, you might find it interesting if I translate from the Italian, here's what the name of the cathedral is, the Metropolitan Cathedral, the Basilica of the Nativity of St. Mary. Simply stated, Jesus isn't even at the center of this cathedral. One of the things that was interesting when you went into the cathedral at the top of its dome on the uh, interior of the building, probably 60, 70 feet in the air, there's a little red light that shines. And the purpose of the red light is it shows you where they have an artifact that is a great treasure in this cathedral. They keep it stored up there. They believe that it's one of the nails from the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And once a year, they have a huge pageant, a huge celebration at this church where somebody goes up, takes that nail, they bring it down, they parade it around, and everybody is basically celebrating the physical symbol of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In Florence, go to the next pictures. Go one more. That's there. This place is nuts. It's so big, you can basically see it from anywhere in Florence. We were trying to find our hotel. Our hotel was right in the city center, and I had to drive right next to this. It was in this square. It was filled with people. I don't know. Like, it'd be nice if some of the road signs were in English, but I was just driving trying to miss pedestrians. But we, we, drove, we drove right next to the church. It's huge. And Florence is kind of an interesting town. It's where all of the elite artists and philosophers of Rome tended to gather. And as you go to the church, if you look up near the top of the church, there's this image of God. God's at the top of the cathedral. There's a triangle above his head representing the Holy Spirit. And then as you move your way down the exterior of the building, you've got Mary holding baby Jesus. And then there's the 12 disciples. And then there's a bunch of important bishops and popes. And then as you get closer to ground level, there's a whole other layer of statues. And those are for people like Leonardo da Vinci or Raphael or Michelangelo or Donna. All the Ninja Turtles are there, okay? <laughs> They're all right there in the architecture. And um, it's funny how our worship shifts. Anything that the creation makes is never worthy of the creator. And let's just for a moment look at these two cathedrals and let's just assume for a second that we could go back in time and look at the decision to make these cathedrals. And let's, for, for discussion purposes, let's give all pure motives. Let's assume pure motives. That they wanted to give their best to God. 
that there was no egos involved, that there was no competing with other cities and other cathedrals, that their motives were purest and highest intent. They just wanted to give and create something that was their best for God. I would argue six, seven hundred years later, centuries have gone past. What are the unintended consequences of the statues? Well, here's one. Are these buildings functional churches or are they tourist attractions? The civic pride, the city's pride, is it in the cathedral or the God of the cathedral? Do people feel closer to God because there's been heart change or because they visited a building? Again, in, in some of these cathedrals, it was difficult to find representations or references to our Savior. Plenty about Mary, plenty about bishops, plenty about popes, plenty about apostles. Even if it was pure motives, you begin to see that when we violate commands, it has consequences. As we were driving around Italy, as Kristen and I were looking at a lot of these cathedrals, I, I kind of looked at her and I said, how did, the, how did like the Catholics miss the second command that you're not supposed to make graven images? And, and it was interesting. I never knew this before I studied it. Do you know that the Catholics and the Lutherans have a different numbering of the Ten Commandments that we do? If you go back to Exodus, the, the commandments aren't numbered, so it's not that there's anything sacred about the numbers, but we number them differently than they do. Their first command is don't have any other gods before me. Their second command is don't take the name of the Lord in vain. That's our third command. We separate the first two commands. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't make any graven images. The graven images is buried under their first command. The Catholics and the Lutherans, they take our 10th command, which is don't covet, and they break it into two. Don't covet your neighbor's wife and don't covet your neighbor's stuff. And I'm not saying they're right or we're right. I'm not arguing about the numbering. All I want to tell you is this isn't a Catholic problem. This is a human heart problem. The commands that we tend to push against the edges of, that we tend to violate, we minimize. And the commandments that we follow without struggle, we tend to villainize when somebody else breaks them. And God has said, don't make anything that you will worship that diminishes my glory. It's interesting, Solomon, even as he built the temple in Jerusalem, says in 1 Kings 8, 27, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Paul looks at the cathedrals and the temples of Athens as he walks around and in Acts 17, he says, the Lord who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God chose to reveal himself through us through the spoken word. He says, don't make any images because at the end of the day, no matter how glorious they are, they will take away. They will not add to my glory. They will diminish from my glory. Here's the third thing. God has given us in his grace in addition to his word, he has given us his own image bearers. He's revealed himself to us through his son, through Jesus. In Hebrews 1 verse 1, it says this, speaking of Jesus, it says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke, there it is again, to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Get this, speaking of Jesus in verse 3 of Hebrews 1, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Hey, you want to know what God the Father's like? You want to experience what he's like? Look at Jesus. Everything you need to know about the Father is revealed in who Jesus is. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image, the fingerprint of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In John 14, Jesus is having a dialogue with his disciples. He's explaining to them that he's leaving, that he's going to die. And before he leaves, Philip, the disciple, asks this question in verse 8 of John 14. Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Philip, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Rather than worship an image, rather than worship something of our invention or creation and say, that's what God's like, he's saying, look at my son. You've got four gospels that describe Jesus. You've got the uh, rest of the New Testament that explains the nature of who Jesus was. <clears throat> and how he desires to be worshipped. Not only is he given his image bearers, his son. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You can build a cathedral as elegant and ornate as you want. It doesn't compare to what God has created in us as his image bearers. And by the way, in Genesis 1.27, when it says that we are created in the image of God, male and female, he created them, don't be surprised that that is where our culture attacks. Doesn't view us as image bearers of God. That is ignored. Now listen, sin has corrupted our ability to properly reflect the nature and character of who God is. But listen to what the New Testament says that God's intent is for the followers of Jesus Christ as it relates to their witness his image bearers to the world. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. John 5 says that we are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So, so in essence, you don't need a building in Milan or Florence to make people think and rever the awesomeness of God. That's our job. Doesn't belong to a building. That's what God has given to us. In Ephesians, Paul writes, You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. He's not talking about the church building. He's talking about the church. Our job is to be image bearers of God. And we don't create something to take the place of what God has called us to do personally. So, so some reasons God gave this command because he gets to decide. It's not even our choice. Anything we make cheapens the creator. God's created image bearers through his son and through us. Here's the cost of disobedience. Here's the first one. Hopefully you see this in the text that God is jealous. That God is jealous. We read this in verse 5. You should not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and to the fourth generation. 
Now, when we look at that word jealous and we think about what it means to be jealous, it normally has a negative connotation. We're, we're thinking of somebody that's insecure, that somebody who's selfish, somebody who wants to take or exercise control. Please hear me. That's not our God. That's not our God. Jealousy, when it says that God is jealous, well, well let me try to illustrate it. Can you put up the next slide? So, so yesterday morning, I'm running between uh, soccer games and raindrops. My grandkids are playing soccer, and as I was headed to the 10:30 game at Peach Plains, my son said, "Hey, could you swing in and grab a water somewhere?" I forgot to bring water for his son Ben, who was playing at 10:30. I'm like, "Yeah, absolutely." So I swung into the mobile station in Grand Haven, and I saw this display. I don't know how well you can see that. It says it's the One Chip Challenge, real peppers, real heat. And then it has this yellow piece of paper. So I'm just standing online looking at this thing, thinking, this is nuts. Like, and you got to understand, just in context, if I go to Taco Bell and order a chalupa, my head starts to sweat. I don't even like spicy things. So I'm looking at this thing and, and reading from the warning. These chips are made with the California Reaper pepper. It says, keep them away from children. Keep them away if you don't like spicy foods. It's not intended for, and I quote here, anyone who has any medical condition. <laughs> I think that pretty much covers like anybody that is reading the warning. Uh, don't touch your eyes when you're eating these things. The side effects are sweating, nausea, vomiting. They tell you, please leave the premises before you undertake the challenge. <laughs> so I'm looking at this thing. And um, I go up to the counter. There's a girl working at the counter. I go, like, this is nuts. Like, like, who would do that? And uh, the girl looks at me and she goes, well, I would do it if somebody would buy it for me. Y'all think I'm wicked, don't you? <laughs> oh, yeah, I bought it. I bought it for her. And uh, she's like, oh, I'm so excited. I'll take this home. I'll try it tonight. So if you go into mobile tomorrow, and there's a girl like, with bloodshot eyes and a runny nose and just looks miserable, uh, that, that's on me. And, and I tell you that, the girl wanted to try it. Warning, warning, warning. I come along, I will facilitate your desire. Go ahead and try it. That's not our God. That's like example 182 of why I'd make a terrible God. <laughs> what God is saying when he's jealous for us, don't hurt yourself. Don't chase these other gods. Don't chase these other pursuits that aren't going to satisfy you. We say, choose to sin, choose to suffer. And God is saying, listen, I'm jealous. I'm jealous for right, my rightful place and for your joy. I'm jealous for my glory and for you to be in right relationship with me. Because it's there that you will experience the fullness of joy. Don't chase the other stuff where you're going to get hurt. One of the consequences is God is jealous. Here's the second one. Idolatry is a trap. It says, don't make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth below or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. I just want you to focus on just a couple things here. Note the progression. We make something an idol, then we worship it, and then we serve it. We make it an idol, 
then we worship it, and then we serve it. And that's the danger of idolatry. It enslaves us. And, and, and it's subtle, and it's tricky, and you don't even know it's happening until it happens. For me, one of those things can be um, golf. Nothing wrong with golfing. I love going out and enjoying golf. But I can get to the point where I'm focused on golf to the point that I'm more worried about my score than even enjoying being out there. And if I don't score well, then I'm mad while I'm doing the thing that is my idol. And then to make it worse, I can begin to serve it. Like I can get back from Italy and be like, well, man, I haven't golfed in two weeks. Why? Because I was busy on vacation. But now I need to get back out and golf because I don't want my game to fall apart. But my week is busy and I don't have time to golf. So I start to ask Kristen, hey, Kristen, what are we doing this weekend? We got anything going? Hey, can I help around the house on Wednesday and Thursday? <laughs> you see what's happening. I'm starting to make plans so that I can follow my idol if I'm not careful. But then if the weekend is busy and I can't fit it into my schedule, now I'm upset because I can't do the thing that is actually the idol of my heart. You see how that gets really, really tricky? And there's a lot of things you can substitute in there for golf. Lives wrecked because everything is planned around the idol of their pursuit. And listen, if your pursuit is stuff and your pursuit is riches, you're typically not walking around saying, man, I would just be happy if I owned an iPhone 14 or if I drove a specific car. You're not verbalizing that to yourself because you don't want to believe that about yourself. But what you'll find is for these trinkets and for these things, you'll go into an incredible amount of debt and your heart is revealed in the process. Be careful. The warning of the text is idolatry is a, slap, it, a trap. It enslaves us. Here's another thing. It enslaves our families. It says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Hey, hey men, guard your hearts. Idolatry can enslave your families. You can't live under the same roof with someone without the children and the other people in your house starting to pick up what are the true passions of your heart. Hey, hey moms, kids are watching. They, they, they pick up on what our idols are and what we do is we begin to establish a proclivity through the line of our families towards certain sins. And many of you know what I'm talking about. It can be addictions, it can be alcoholism, it can be anger, it can be the chase of adventure, riches, whatever, and you watched your family do it, and all of a sudden you're falling into the same traps, and you're worried that your kids are falling into the same traps. It slaves us, it enslaves our families. Now, I, I want to be careful with this verse because it's often taken out of context. This is not a generational curse because of our sin. Exodus comparing scripture, or I'm sorry, Ezekiel comparing scripture with scripture says this, Ezekiel 18, 20, the son shall not suffer the iniquity of the father, nor the, son, the father suffer the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So what's that saying is we're all punished for our own sin. Those who look at this command and they read verse 5 of Exodus 20 and they feel that it's unfair, they're assuming that the father is guilty but the kids are innocent. Actually, the text says the exact opposite. It says, the sins of the father will be on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. The kids are just as guilty of the sin as their fathers. They've made their own choices. 
It's not a generational curse, but it does bring to light. Hey, hey parents, what kind of inheritance are you leaving for your kids? Hey, 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 what are the things that you value that will hold them faithfully to the Lord throughout their walk? The scary thing about idolatry, the reason that God says, hey, don't even make an image is because it enslaves. And it doesn't just enslave us. Our sin often has consequences on those that are most important to us, those that are closest to us. So, one more verse, verse 6. God says he'll visit the iniquity of the fathers to the children, to the third and fourth generation, but I want you to see the pivot in verse 6. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. There it is. There's the heart of our God in the second commandment. What's God's desire? He's saying, listen, I'm jealous. Don't chase after other gods. Put no other god before me. Don't make a graven image. Don't fall and start worshiping the creation instead of the creator. Here's why my heart's desire for you is that you would experience the full frontal assault of my loving kindness. And I want to give it to thousands. See, that's the heart of our God in these commandments. It's not don't do this or you're going to get zapped. It's, listen, I love you. This is a love letter. This is how I designed creation to work, and you are most satisfied when you are most satisfied in me. It's interesting. 1 John 5, 3, it says this, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commands, and his commandments are not burdensome. Paul, reflecting on his life, in Philippians 3 says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. Jesus calls out in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's funny, as a pastor here, I, I look around the room as I preach. I never look in the balcony, y'all are safe, okay? The lights are too bright. If you want to hide, go up there. But as I look around the room, I'm looking at faces. And as I look at faces, sometimes I don't even know the names, but I know the stories. And I catch glimpses of some of the burdens, the health issues, the, the widows, the loss, the pain, the struggle. Life has its share of burdens, doesn't it? And I don't know... For all of you, what burdens you carry in here, what you're struggling with, what, what weights of life that you're carrying. But there's a God up in heaven who's real. And he's revealed himself to us through his word. And we are so easily distracted that we chase other things to help, de to help ease our burdens. And you've got a heavenly father saying, man, I just want to show steadfast love to thousands. Well, how do, how do we trigger that? By loving him and keeping his commandments. You're saying, wait, David, that kind of sounds like work salvation. If we keep his commandments, he'll bless me or prosperity gospel. It's not. It's just the gospel. When the Father does a work in drawing us to him to save us that is accomplished through the work of the Son on the cross, bearing our sins in, he takes our sins in our place. And then through that, the Holy Spirit is imparted to us who have sought repentance. And 
The Spirit is working with our heart. The only logical conclusion of that good news, that gospel, is that we would follow the Lord not out of obligation, but out of gratitude, that obedience would follow the decision that Jesus is in all, desiring his steadfast love. The second command, revealing that God desires to show his steadfast love to thousands. We believe it, and will you do what it calls you to do? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for commands given thousands of years ago to stiff-necked people. And uh, we recognize that um, today we are also often a stiff-necked people. We are a people wired to do what we want to do the way we want to do it, and no one gets to tell us what to do. I thank you for just a couple moments this morning where we could consider that you are God that you are holy, that you set the rules, not us. And Father, more than just explaining that, please, I would just praise your name this morning for giving us the reason behind it. You're a God who loves us, who doesn't want to see us strive and stumble around in the dark, but you sent your son a great light. Father, help us to reflect that light, to be image bearers of you, in our community this week. It's in your name we pray. Amen.